Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. A huge story that happened right at the beginning of the year was just 33 minutes into the new year when NASA made space exploration history, observing the most distant space object ever, and it kind of looks like a red, lumpy snowman. The New Horizon spacecraft was traveling at 32,000 miles per hour as it did a flyby of a space object called Ultima Thule, which is about 4 billion miles from Earth. It's just a a crazy feat of engineering, uh, math, science. It's such a crazy story. We spoke to Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios, to talk about this great space achievement to start off the year, what to expect in 2019. And we start off by him telling us exactly what this object is that's called Ultima Thule. So this thing is what's known as a contact binary. It's the first such world that we've ever seen close up. Basically, you can think of it as two relatively smallish icy spheres that have been fused together over time while spinning about an axis. Rotational rate is about every 15 hours. So it's just out there spinning about 4 billion miles away from Earth. And it's in a region of space that is thought to be home to All of these types of objects that haven't changed much since the dawn of the solar system. So basically, it's it's a time capsule. Um, You know, it's as if school kids, uh, you know, buried this thing in the ground uh, and came across it 4.5 billion years later uh, and took a look at it. And um, that's what we're getting a look at. We're looking at uh, what might have been the the building blocks of both planets and comets. You called it Mm -hmm. an icy world. And as you're saying, it's comprised of building blocks of early planets and things like that. So it's not a meteorite or a comet or something like that. It's like an early formation stage of a planet type of thing, right? Yeah, it probably was materials like this that went on to form planets and went on to form comets for a variety of reasons, objects, in this part of space, which is a billion miles beyond Pluto. They're so far from the gravitational pull of the large planet that they're kind of adrift. And it's an incredibly cold region of space and a very dark region with a very dim starlight. So it's thought that there's some icy remnants out there and that what they can do is by studying this, they can test their hypotheses for how planets form in the first place. Do they form as the result of violent collisions between objects, or do they form more out of slow conglomerations of stuff, sort of like a kid playing with Play-Doh, adding pieces into a ball over time. How are we observing this now? Because this is NASA's New Horizons spacecraft. It launched in 2006. And in 2015, it gave us a ton of data on Pluto. Now this one, I've read a couple places that we're straining the capabilities of this spacecraft. 
So the spacecraft is healthy. It's 13 years old, but it's healthy. It has a relatively weak antenna. It's out there 4 billion miles away. It takes six hours or, or so for a signal to reach Earth broadcast from the spacecraft. And it can only down, we can only download it at a certain rate. You know, it's not exactly Fios or broadband or something like that. We're limited by the speed of the antenna here and the energy that they can devote to it because they don't want to use up all the battery. Six hours, four billion miles. That doesn't sound too bad, though. It doesn't, actually. It sounds a little bit faster than my home internet, actually. <laughs> I think that it's amazing what they did was, you know, this thing passed Pluto in 2015. That was the original mission. And then they said, hey, wait a minute, we got a healthy spacecraft and it's going out beyond Pluto based on its flight path and gravitational uh you know, it wasn't passing anything else that was going to slingshot it in a different direction. And the Hubble Space Telescope had identified this object in 2014, and they set set course for it. But hearing from the navigation team during the press conferences on uh, New Year's Eve was really impressive. I mean, this thing is only about 20 miles at its longest point, yeah. which is incredibly small. Right. In the, the big expanse of space, it's tiny. Yeah. And the spacecraft is the size of a piano and it's moving at 32,000 miles per hour and they wanted to get it around 2,200 miles away from the object and they wanted to be reasonably sure that there wasn't any space to breathe. So they weren't sure whether all their calculations were right and whether it was going to survive or hit something and it looks like it was a stunning success but we've only gotten back less than 1% of the data so far. The data is going to be coming back for the next 20 months. Is there anything big on the horizon for 2019 as far as space travel, spacecrafts, any, anything like that? 2019 is going to be a pretty big year. We're going to see if all remains on schedule. We're going to see two companies. SpaceX and Boeing launched the first crewed commercial crew test missions and possibly actual missions to the International Space Station. So humans will once again be launched into space from the United States. That hasn't happened since 2011. China is going to be trying to land a spacecraft on the far side of the moon, which has never been done before. That's going to happen any day now. We don't know exactly when. It's a little bit murkier than NASA is in terms of their public communications. Many other nations are going to be launching missions, and there's going to be a ton of unveilings of new space systems by U.S. companies. It's really going to be a pretty big year for space exploration uh, in the U.S. and abroad. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Anytime. As soon as we finished talking with Andrew about all the big space stuff coming up for 2019, he had even mentioned China landing a rover on the moon. And hours later, it happened. China landed a lunar rover on the far side of the moon. A lot of people call it the dark side of the moon. That's a misnomer. That side of the moon actually gets a lot of sunlight, but it's called the dark side, the far side, because on that side of the moon, you lose radio contact back here on Earth. So it was quite an accomplishment for China. They're trying to set themselves up to be part of the space race now. They're trying to compete with the United States People are saying they're possibly trying to create some type of lunar base there. They had to launch a satellite to be able to relay some information back from that far side of the moon. Something that was interesting, though, is in Chinese media, it really didn't get all the big fanfare. A lot of people said they weren't 
interested. They weren't paying attention. They were concerned with the cost. Either way, China did get something very amazing accomplished because no other spacecraft has landed on that side of the moon. So there's going to be a lot of big stuff coming up this year. This is just one of them. And uh, let's wait for what happens in space this year. We got to speak to a really interesting guy. His name is Ken Kashenda. A lot of people kind of love him and hate him. He's the inventor of the touchscreen keyboard autocorrect for the original iPhone. It's something that's just synonymous with all phones now, and it sometimes messes up the words you're typing. Sometimes it saves your life so you didn't send something dumb. Ken was a software engineer and designer for more than 15 years. He has a new book out about working during the golden age of Steve Jobs, And uh, we spoke to him about a range of subjects. We started off by talking about all the struggles he had about getting rid of that keyboard that everybody loves so much. Well, it was stressful. I'll tell you, the whole plan for the iPhone involved getting rid of that hardware keyboard that was so familiar and so successful to smartphone users in the pre-iPhone era. I mean, everybody remembers the BlackBerry and it's nicknamed the Crackberry, which of course (laughs) is a comment on how well people like their keyboard on that device. And so the challenge for the iPhone was to take the hardware keyboard that everybody expected and change it to software. Beyond the actual touchscreen and all the gestures and everything, that really was almost the most important thing about the new iPhone is because that's you needed to compete with that other thing. Right. And when the keyboard became software, it meant that it could get out of the way when you weren't typing. And this opened the device for apps so that you could look at full screen photos and play full screen games, turn the device to landscape and have that seem like a natural way to hold the device. So it was a key concept for the product from the beginning. How long did you guys work on the autocorrect and and the keyboard for the original iPhone? The development effort, when I joined it, it took about 18 months to get from a very early days where we had just some simple concepts like inertial scrolling and springboard, the app launching screen, to the day that Steve was holding up a finished phone on stage, uh, announcing it to the world. So it was about 18 months of pretty intense work. Initially, you guys had to keep it secret because the iPhone had not really been announced yet or anything. So how was all the trials going with making this thing actually work? We had a way of approaching our work that was based on demos. We would come up with ideas and try to get a little bit of inspiration for how the software might work. But then we turned right around and tried to make something we could try out right away. When I was working on autocorrection, I would write a new piece of code and as soon as possible, I'd grab somebody in the hallway or poke my head into the office next to me and say, here, here, come try this. And it was that process of making those demos and getting that feedback as soon as possible that then drove the round after round of refinement and improvement that made a shippable product from what was pretty humble beginnings. Let's get a little technical. How does it actually work, the autocorrect feature? A lot of times you're looking at keys that are next to each other and you have to make the educated guess to really figure out what you're trying to say. But so how how does this all work? For the original iPhone, the breakthrough idea was that when you type a word 
What you're really doing is making a pattern. I like to think of it as each tap is a star and the pattern that you make when you type a word is a constellation. And so, fortunately, it works out that most words look different from each other. So the constellations have a shape. And if you look at the shape that a person types and compare it to all the words in the dictionary, usually there's a best match that that makes the most sense. So that was the key idea, to make a, a little bit of a pun there. The key idea was that when you type, you make pictures that look like words in a dictionary. Let's talk about bad words for a little moment. Everybody puts in a couple of salty things in their text messages sometimes, and it always changes it to something not so bad. Ducking comes to mind. How did you guys decide to use those as alternatives for actual words or even putting in those bad words? Well, first of all, I have to apologize to all those people out there that I've gotten <laughs> in the way of their expletives over <laughs> right. all the years. But here, here's a way to think about it. Usually we're frustrated when we want to put that salty language in and the keyboard autocorrects it out. But look at the opposite case. Let's say you're on vacation. You went and you rented a house on a lake somewhere. And there's some beautiful waterfowl out on the lake. And you want to text your grandma to tell her and send her a photo to say how beautiful the ducks look on the lake. <laughs> well, you don't want that to go the other way, right. do you? So you really, right. you're, what you're saying is you have everybody's back. Got everybody's back when they're texting grandma. Yep. That's good. And you guys had to research all sorts of different words and actually put them into the dictionary so that the feature would never choose those words. Yeah, right. There are some countries that even have laws that prevent the use of certain language. Mostly this comes into the area of hate speech. And certainly when we were putting out this product to be friendly and useful for people, we did not want the keyboard to seem helpful in uh, typing slurs or demeaning people. That was just not the spirit of the product that we were trying to make. So we had to research what all of these nasty, horrible, awful words were, put them in the dictionary, but mark them especially so that the autocorrection algorithm would always skip them. It would recognize them, but it wouldn't give them to you. Tell us about the new book, Creative Selection, and and also working with Steve Jobs. He's such an icon now in the technological industry. He had kind of a reputation as being a jerk sometimes. What's your experience with all that? Well, I wrote the book to talk about those times when we were making the iPhone and Steve was still around making all the product decisions for Apple. And a big part of what inspired me was that I started at Apple in 2001 when Apple was an underdog. It didn't have the hit products that we just take for granted right now. And when I joined in June of 2001, the iPod hadn't even come out yet. That oh, was wow. four months in the future. And so I worked and, and contributed 
to these changes that that took Apple from you know a five percent market share in the personal computer market to being a trillion dollar company. Now, naturally, a lot of other people had played their role too, but I was there working with some of them and and contributing my part, like the like with the keyboard on the iPhone. And so I wanted to tell some of the stories about those times and what it was like to demo to Steve and and try to get his approval. What was so that, that like? How does it feel getting approval from a Steve Jobs, you know, when he, yeah, when well, he actually likes is, something that you're giving him? Yeah, he could be pretty intimidating. I mean, it, the 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 reality of it is much like the the legend or or what people believe. But here's the thing about Steve is that he was so focused on making great products. That's what he cared about. And so when people say that, well, he could act like a jerk, I don't really look at it that way. He was just very blunt and very clear in his criticism. So if I brought him a demo and if he didn't like it, if he didn't think that it was up to Apple standards, well, he said so. And he didn't waste any time trying to make sure that he didn't hurt my feelings. That was part of the culture of the company. You knew that you were going to get it loud and you're going to get it straight from him. And at the same time, if he liked your work, well, he could be very gracious and thank you. And he did thank me a couple times when I, you know, I finally worked through all the issues and brought him something that he was willing to say, yeah, that's ready to go into a product. But that's the best way to understand how Steve approached his role at Apple is he was the editor in chief. His was the last word and you needed to get his approval to get software or hardware or designs or or anything into the Apple product and into people's hands. How did you feel about autocorrect when it had its hiccups and and whatnot on, on the process? Well, he was worried as we all were. We sometimes called the keyboard a science project, which kind of implies that it's a little researchy. <laughs> Most of the time when we started working on a project, we were pretty sure that we could deliver it and and, and that it was the work and the time was into refining and honing and making everything as beautiful and well-created, well crafted as possible. That wasn't really the case with the keyboard. We didn't know if we could come up with a good solution. So all of us were in the same boat and I couldn't have done the work that I did if there wasn't this team of people around me giving constant feedback and support and sometimes a kick in the butt to just keep going and throwing out the weak ideas and keeping the strong ones. And you just keep, we, we just kept going and eventually we we, you know, came up with the solution that we all have now, right? As, uh, as I say, lobe it or gate it, right? Love it or hate it. <laughs> right. Well, I'm sure as much as everybody can hate it at times, I, really everybody does thank you for it because we can't live without it. It's like you said, we'll be making mistakes all over the place. We're talking to Ken Koshenda. He created the touchscreen keyboard autocorrection for the original iPhone. He's got a new book out called Creative Selection, Inside Apple's Design Process During the Golden Age of Steve jobs. Thank you very much, Ken. Thanks very much. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.